0: Good morning. You know, I'm starting, to, I'm starting to like the intimacy of a small group. <laughs> and one thing that I have noticed is when you have to do two services, you need more people to do it. And so people that normally don't get a chance to do some things are contributing. And it's wonderful. Uh, Harve it was wonderful to have you pray for us this morning. And, and the story that you shared with us, Virginia, that's really about your own great-grandfather. And his daughters, wow. Well, I want to give you just a few words on compliance before we get into our subject for today. Compliance is a huge issue nowadays. Did you know, for instance, that uh, American businesses buy more compliance software than any other kind of software to run their, their businesses? There are so many rules and regulations that must be complied with. Anyway, on Thursday afternoon, we got an email from Doug Bing stating that there had been some new guidelines coming out from uh, the governor's governor's office regarding the COVID-19 mitigation requirements on religious gatherings. And sure enough, there is a new document dated June 18th on governor.wa.gov, which I downloaded and read carefully. And it looks as if we may be able to go to a single service by next week. Uh, I'm still trying to figure it all out. They've raised the attendance limits from 50 to 200, but we're still at 25% of, of fire capacity, uh, whichever is lower. It had been 50 people, but that capacity requirement is ambiguous. It has to do with how many restrooms you have and how many exit doors you have and all that kind of stuff. So we don't know for sure, but I will let you know by email what's gonna happen. Over the next few weeks, it would be nice to get back to a single service so that we could get our children's Sabbath schools up and going at the proper time. But as I read through this five-page document, five pages, I felt my blood pressure begin to rise. There is bullet point after bullet point of requirements that must be met and documents that must be on display and response plans that must be available on demand to any governmental authority that wants to see them. And instead of being grateful, I was becoming frustrated. Now, you noticed in the bulletin it says you, can, you know where one of your idols may be by examining your deepest emotions, right? But then I thought of a very quick and effective way around all these endless requirements, a very simple solution, and here it is. What if we were to say this? What if we were to say, we are not going to call this a church service or religious service anymore. We are gonna call it a protest. Because protests, as you know, are not only encouraged by the people running our state and our cities right now, they are celebrated. And if you participate in one, you are considered to be a hero. And, and this is the beauty of it, protests are exempt from all COVID-19 mitigation requirements. So we could say this gathering is a protest, And here is what we are gathering to protest this morning. Sin. We are here to protest sin and death and diabolical influence of Satan in our world. We protest hypocrisy. We protest evil, we protest lies and deceit and all authority of the evil one which sets itself up against the authority of the God of heaven, against the God of creation. We protest wickedness in high places and, here's where it gets personal, we protest the weakness and fallenness even in our own hearts especially in our own hearts. Because sin in the human heart is the real underlying issue for all the breakdown that we see going on right now, isn't it? The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. It's lurking within all of us. So what we've really gathered here to protest this morning is idolatry. Idolatry. The universal human tendency to elevate lesser things to ultimate status in our hearts. The universal tendency to love other stuff more than we love God. We're going to return to this subject of idolatry this morning. And the main idea, again, comes from this book, Counterfeit Gods. I'm continuing where we left off a couple of weeks ago when we thought about the story of Leah. How many of you heard the podcast? About Leah in the morning. You, boy, I tell you what, you, you, that is a good story. I told you that I had been rereading this book when I, when I did that podcast. I've never, I have never thought about idolatry like I have been for the last three, four weeks since rereading this book. And I began that message with a quotation by a Jewish philosopher who said, The central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. It is filled with story after story depicting the innumerable forms and the devastating effects of idol worship. I've been thinking a lot about that statement. The central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. I, I, I want to push back against that. I think maybe it would be better to say it a different way, to say it like this. The central principle of the Bible is to make God first in your life and your heart. Here's what I mean. I remember there was a lawyer who came to Jesus with a question. He asked, Jesus, what's the most important commandment of all? All these rules, all these regulations, the whole Torah, you know, everything. What's the bottom line? What really counts? You remember what Jesus said? He didn't say, get rid of your idols. That's the most important thing to do. Get rid of your idols. He said, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You think about what Jesus says here this this is not about compliance is it it's interesting the lawyer asks about law regulation commandment but that's not how Jesus answered he says the whole point of everything is to love God supremely to have God first in your heart to live in such a way that when when your thoughts are idle they just automatically go to him that we can't forget about his goodness. That we live in, a, in, a, in such a way that we remember how it feels to be in love. To feel wonderful and to delight in God. And you think about that from God's viewpoint for a moment. He has made a whole wide world full of wonder and beauty, meticulously crafted, filled with delights, and he has given it to the people he loves, to us. He has poured out blessing upon blessing, a thousand different love notes he leaves for us to discover, from the taste of a fresh grapefruit to fields of daisies. Have you noticed the daisies this spring? they are just billions of them. The fields are like snow, and there are no two of them alike In hope of what? What is it that God wants? Does he want compliance? Or does he just want to be adored? And why is that? Why is the most important thing about life, about existence, to love God more than anything? It's because that's what we were made to do. To love and to be loved by God. But here's the problem none of us really do it. I mean, seriously. How many of us really love God with all our heart and strength and all of our mind and all of our souls? Huh? Anybody? Anybody here? I don't. I want to. But it's like I have spiritual ADD or something. You know, I'm always just jutting off to the next thing to set my affections on. I love other things. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And as one writer has said, our hearts are idle factories running three shifts a day in a dead-end pursuit of meaning and significance from things that can never deliver. Paul sums it up in a nutshell. In the third chapter of Romans, this is what he says There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God, there is no one who does good, not even one. How many people really love God according to that? How many? No one. Now, of course, Paul is quoting from the 14th Psalm here. And the argument that he is trying to advance is that humanity in general is a pretty sorry lot. Isaiah makes the same point. He says, we all like sheep have turned astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And Isaiah means women there too, not just men. A preacher by the name of David Clarkson, one who gave one of the most searching sermons on idolatry ever preached, said it like this, Though few will own it, nothing is more common than idolatry. If we think of our soul as a house, idols are set up in every room. We prefer our own wisdom to God's wisdom. We prefer our own desires to God's will, our own reputation to God's honor. None of us searches after God. Now, how might that feel if you were God? Think about that. Would that not be a heartbreak? Not even one. But that's what Jesus says life is really all about, to love God first and best. You know, I really don't understand sometimes why God doesn't just give up on the whole human race But for some reason, he just won't. The hope still burns in his great heart of hearts that we will catch a breathtaking glimpse of his goodness and fall in love. So, the central principle of the Bible is to reject idolatry. The central principle of the Bible is to have God in first place in our hearts. Two sides of the same coin. And this morning, we're going to go back to the story of Jacob to see how this works. And what we will rediscover is that idols cannot be removed. They cannot just be rooted out. They must be replaced. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 31, the ones that Sandy just read to us this morning. This is one of the most powerful stories in the Bible, really, and one of the most mysterious. I never really got the full understanding of this story until I read this book here recently. Maybe you've read this before and you wonder, what's really going on here anyway? Why why the strange wrestling match that goes all night long? But these verses stand as the centerpiece of Jacob's entire life. Let's get the context first. If you heard the message on Leah, this will be a review. If not, you remember that God came to a man named Abraham and promised to redeem the whole world through his family, through a line of his descendants. God chose Abraham, who was living in Babylon at the time, because he knew that Abraham would respond to the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart. He said, I know, Abraham. He will follow me. So God made Abraham a promise. He said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It was a promise that God made to him to send a deliverer of the human race through Abraham's line. So in every generation, one child would be chosen to bear the responsibility of leadership in the family and to preserve the line of faith in the true God. This is what the Bible calls the birthright to walk with God as head of the family, to pass that faith in God on to the next generation. And it went on generation after generation until the day when one of Abraham's descendants would come as the promised Messiah himself. And that's why when Matthew tells the story of Jesus, he begins with a genealogy that starts with Abraham. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, he writes in the very first verse of chapter 1. This is how God intended to bless the whole world through Abraham's line, by sending Jesus. Now you remember that Abraham waited a long, long time for children. Why? Because Sarah couldn't have children. Sarah couldn't conceive. But eventually he fathered two sons. Who were they? Remember? Ishmael and Isaac. That's right. Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn. And in that culture at that time, it was always the firstborn son who inherited a double portion of the the material blessings, the estate, all right, as well as this birthright blessing. So Abraham favored Ishmael. He was the firstborn. The only problem was that Ishmael was not the son that God intended to receive the birthright blessing. Although God had promised Abraham a son, year after year, his wife, Sarah, failed to conceive. She couldn't get pregnant. Year after year, the promise went unfulfilled. Year after year, their hopes for a child was dashed. Until finally, Sarah said, now I know how sons come about. And it's pretty clear that I'm not going to be able to give my husband a child. So I will solve this problem by giving my maid to Abraham as a surrogate. And the child she has will be my legal son. That's how God's promise will come about. That was the custom of the day. And it was often practiced in that culture at that time. So that's what she did. But of course all it led to was family strife and no sooner had Ishmael been conceived that Abraham knew it was the wrong son. Ishmael was the son of human effort of human works that's exactly what Paul says in Galatians the fourth chapter but he was not the son of promise. God had promised Abraham a son that would be born on account of a miracle that only God could bring about, a son that would be born to Sarah well after the possibility of ever having children was long gone. But eventually, that child was born, and his name was Isaac, and you remember that Isaac means laugh because they laughed at God when he first said, oh, Sarah's going to have a baby? Oh, yeah, ha, ha, ha. So they named their son Laughter. And he received the birthright blessing. He became the one through whom the promise of the Messiah was handed down. Years later, Isaac married Rebekah. And just like Sarah before her, she too was unable to conceive children. How in the world was God's blessing ever going to come to the whole world, passed down through generations, when the women he chose were unable to have babies? Now, instead of turning to a surrogate, Isaac instead praised God on account of his wife, Genesis said, and God heard that prayer, and as a result, Rebecca became pregnant. Only it just wasn't one baby within her. There were two, there were twins. And uh, they fought with each other, even within the womb, Genesis says. And Rebekah prayed, and she asked God, she said, what's going on with me? Why is this happening? Why are they fighting within me? And God told her there were two nations in her, but the younger one would serve the older one, see? The birthright blessing would not go to the older boy, as was customary, but to the younger. And when it came time for them to be born, the older one had red hair, and so he was named Esau, which means red But the one who was born second had his hand on his brother's heel as he came out, almost as if he were trying to hold him back and get out first, almost as if he were striving for the preeminence from the very beginning. And so they named him Jacob, which means to supplant or to overreach or to grasp because he was grasping at his brother's heel. Imagine having a name like that as a kid, the grasper. there comes the grasper hold on to your toys there comes the grasper it's not a winsome name and just like his own father had favored his brother Ishmael over him Isaac favored Esau over Jacob Esau became a hunter and he was good at it too and that made Isaac proud of his boy Esau would go out and hunt and bring back game and make tasty food for dad and dad loved that and he loved Esau Jacob grew up around a house. His mama remembered what God had told her, that her younger boy would be the one chosen to carry on the promise of faith, that he would be the one to receive the birthright blessing. And of course, she must have told that to Jacob along the way somewhere. But Jacob didn't see how that was ever going to take place because his dad seemed set on giving the blessing to Esau. He loved Esau. Jacob longed for a feeling of worthiness in his father's eyes, but it never came. And few things are more wounding to a boy. So he went after it on his own. And you remember how on one occasion he tricked his brother Esau into selling him the double portion of inheritance. Esau had been out hunting as usual. He comes back famished. He walks into the house and the first thing he smells is Jacob's tasty lentil stew. Because unlike Esau, Jacob hangs around the house. He's kind of a mama's boy. He's learned to cook. And Esau says, man, I'm starved to death. Give me some of that good stew. And Jacob seizes the opportunity. Sure, he says, just sell me your birthright first. And Esau does. This is the life uh, in the Jacob and Esau home. A constant competition for the father's approval and affection. And Esau always comes out on top. So Jacob manipulates And then as Isaac nears the end of his life, the time comes for him to pass on that birthright blessing. And who do you think he's going to give it to? He's going to give it to Esau. It's always been Esau. But Rebecca learns what's about to happen. And she knows what God said about the younger boy serving the older. And she concocts a scheme to dupe Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob. In her mind, maybe it's the end justifies the means, but she will pay dearly for this. She convinces Jacob to dress up like Esau, to go into his half-blind father and deceive him into giving the blessing meant for Esau. So Jacob lives up to his name. He supplants his brother, Esau. He tricks his dad into giving him the blessing. And when Esau finds out, he makes a vow to kill his brother. Rebecca gets into that plot too, just in time, and convinces her boy to leave home fast. Jacob flees to the wilderness and heads for his mother's ancestral home. He will never see his mother alive again. On his journey, we get a glimpse into Jacob's lack of spiritual maturity. As he lays down to sleep, lonely and scared he has a dream of a staircase going to heaven reaching all the way up there with angels going up and down on this stairway to heaven and in the dream God appears to him at the top of the stairs and gives him the same promise that he gave his his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac he says I will be with you I will give you descendants I will give you land and all the families of earth are going to be blessed through you And in the morning, Jacob realizes he's had this dream from God. But it's interesting how he reacts. He makes a deal with God. He says, basically, God, if you will promise prosper me, and if you will bring me home and preserve my life and bring me back to my father's household, then you'll be my God. And I'll even give you a tithe. So Jacob ends up at his Uncle Laban's home, falls in love with his daughter Rachel, works seven years to get her, but in the process he's tricked by Laban into taking her older sister Leah, who he doesn't want, and that's the story we looked at three weeks ago. He spends 20 years working for Uncle Laban, tending his sheep, doing whatever he can to humanly build up his own fortune, and to a large degree he succeeds. He's a hard worker. He becomes a wealthy man with two wives one of which he idolizes, literally, two concubines, a bunch of kids, and a lot of flocks and herds, but he is still unsettled. He is still unfulfilled. And he knows that his uncle and his cousins are resentful of him on account of his success. And that's still happening today, by the way. You know that. People work hard and prosper, and so other people resent them. And Jacob realizes he's got to leave or face more strife. And it's probably going to be violent strife. So he decides to return to his homeland with his two wives, Rachel and Leah, and his two concubines and his children and everything he's got. And at this point in the story... The author of Genesis introduces a subplot of how Rachel, when they are packing to leave, steals her father's household idols and packs them away in her camel's saddlebag. It almost seems like a kind of spiritual insurance policy. She knows about the God of heaven and earth because surely Jacob has told her about him and she has seen how God has come through for Leah and how Leah's life has found real meaning at last. But just in case God doesn't come through for her, she's taken the idols with her. She doesn't understand that the Lord cannot simply be added to the life as a hedge against failure. He is not just one more resource to help us achieve our agenda. He's a whole new agenda. Rachel has not learned this. And she packs the idols. We're a lot like Rachel too, aren't we? So Jacob sets out for home with everything he has. He sends messengers ahead to Esau to let him know he's coming home. And then... He gets alarming news. Genesis 32 and verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. It's a whole army. He hasn't forgotten that vow he made 20 years ago to kill him. This is Jacob's worst nightmare. He's paralyzed by fear. The first thing he does is divide his people into two groups and separate them. If one is attacked, he figures, well, maybe the other one can get away. Maybe at least half of us will survive and then he prays to God for help and this time he really prays and you can see a little bit of a little bit of spiritual maturity coming into Jacob's life at this point he even holds God accountable for his own promises he says God you're the one who told me to return home you're the one who said you were going to prosper me and defend me but Esau's coming and he's going to kill me and he's going to kill my wives and children and then he says something else to God he says I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Evidently, the course of his life has come up before Jacob and he realizes how shallow it's been and how many times he has manipulated circumstances in order to get what he feels he has to have to feel worthwhile to make his life worth living. And he realizes it's all empty. And now I'm likely going to die. And I need God more than I've ever needed him before. And in one final act of desperation, he selects four lavish gifts to send on ahead to his brother, hoping to appease his anger. And that evening, Jacob knows the next day will be the climactic day of his life. All his life, he has been wrestling with Esau for the love of their father and for the honor of the leadership of the family. All his life, he has longed to hear his father say, I delight in you more than anyone else in the whole world. See, every one of us needs a blessing like that. Every one of us needs the assurance of our unique value from some outside source. The love and admiration from those that we love most is its own reward, and we look for it from our parents, from our spouses, from our peers from our friends. Jacob's life had been one long wrestling match to get that kind of blessing. He had wrestled with Esau to hear it from his father's lips. He had wrestled with Laban to see it in Rachel's face, but it hadn't worked. He was still empty and needy inside. And now Esau was on the way, the man who had kept him from his father's love and from his inheritance and from his destiny. Tomorrow would be the last battle it's not surprising then that Jacob chooses to spend that last night alone preparing for the day of reckoning he sends his family on across the brook but he remains behind and that night in deep darkness Jacob is attacked by a lone figure and they wrestle for hours the Bible says so Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak When the man saw he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it was daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man said, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, Because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Now at first we wonder, who is this mysterious guy who wrestles with Jacob all night long? But the clues give it away pretty simply in the story. He is supernaturally strong, so even though Jacob wrestles all night, finally just a touch, just a flick of his finger puts Jacob's hip out of joint. Just a touch. It's as if all night long the stranger had been holding back so as not to hurt Jacob. And then the stranger insists on leaving before dawn. Why is that? Because for a human being to see God face to face in daylight means death. So the stranger must leave before Jacob can see him for Jacob's own protection. Jacob clearly realizes he's wrestling with none other than God himself who has come in human form. But as dawn breaks, Jacob does the most astonishing thing he'd ever done. It's not the rational thing. It's not the safe thing, which would have been just to simply let go and retreat. Instead, he does the very opposite. He holds on tight and he cries out, I will not let you go until you bless me. What was it that Jacob was saying here? Maybe it went something like this. What an idiot I've been. Here's what I've been looking for all my life long, the blessing of God. I've sought it in my father's approval, in my Rachel's face, but it's been in you all along. So now I won't let you go until you bless me. Nothing else matters. I don't care if I die in the process because if I don't have your blessing, I've got nothing. Nothing else will do. And the Bible says that God blessed him there. God blessed him there. This kind of blessing that's talked about here in the Bible is always a verbal blessing. If you want an an example of a father's blessing, you can read what Jacob said on his deathbed to his own 12 sons. It's in Genesis 49. You can read that at home later. When my kids were small, we used to have blessings on Friday night, we would put our hands on their heads and we would speak words of a good future over them. Andrew, may you grow up to be faithful and true. May your life be filled with wonder. May you find joy in serving people. May you be hopeful and strong and honest. And may you have lots of fun. It was a little different blessing every week. So what did God say to Jacob that night, huh? To bless him. We don't know. The words aren't recorded. But I wonder, could it maybe have been like the blessing God spoke from heaven to a great descendant of Jacob many centuries later? You are my son, who I love. With you, I am well pleased. We all, every one of us, crave the blessing of God to hear those words spoken to us. You are my son. You are my daughter whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. We think, God would never say that to me. I am such a piece of work. But the gospel says that he has made us into his own sons and daughters. He has adopted us as his own children, not on account of our worthiness, but on account of the worthiness of Jesus. We are his children because what Jesus has done for us. Jacob was wholly unworthy to receive the blessing of God that night, but he was blessed anyway on account of the gospel. He won Simply by hanging on. He received it wholly on the basis of his desperate need. Have you ever wondered where the Israelites came from? It came from this story. In the evening it was Jacob, a grasper, a supplanter, a manipulator. Seeking meaning and significance from all the things that couldn't deliver. But by morning he was Israel. The word means the one who contends with God and has overcome. He was Israel, the one who has at last found meaning in the blessing that comes from God. As one writer says, in the morning Jacob walked away as the very picture of one who has believed the gospel, for he had been permanently lamed because the gospel always humbles human pride. Yet he was permanently fulfilled and, of course, that day he did meet his brother Esau, but God has changed, had changed his brother's heart, too. He was coming in peace, and there would be a tearful reunion as two brothers reunited and wept on one another's neck. Their feud was finally ended. But the life of Jacob was a little perplexing because at no point does he really stand out as a hero or emerge as a profile of faith. Throughout his life, he is never a paragon of morality. Even after this episode of wrestling with God, he's simply just not a champion. He doesn't seem to deserve any blessing from God at all. So if God is holy and just, which he is, why was he so gracious to Jacob? Why would God feign weakness to keep from killing him and then bless him for no better reason than he just wouldn't let go? The answer comes many centuries later when the Lord again appeared as a man on earth. In the darkness with Jacob, the Lord feigned weakness in order to save Jacob's life. But in the darkness of the cross, when the sun refused to shine, the Lord became truly, we- truly weak in order to save all of us. Jacob held on at the risk of his life in order to save himself. But Jesus faced the cross when he could have turned aside. He held on in obedience at the cost of his life, not in order to obtain blessing for himself, but for us. Here's how Paul says it in Galatians. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Because of what Jesus did, the promise that was given to Abraham, the blessing, comes to us too. Not, just be, not, not because we deserve it, but because, not because we are heroes of faith or stalwarts of morality, but because Jesus is. And look at what it says there. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, in the next chapter, Paul explains it. He says, Because you were sons and daughters, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. And you know that that word Abba is a term of endearment a child would use for a much-loved daddy. What Paul is saying is that if you believe the gospel, God will speak his blessing into your life just as he did for Jesus. His love and his approval will become an existential reality in your heart. And so here's the question for us. Do you hear God saying these words of blessing to you this morning? We can. And we must, if the stronghold of idolatry is to be broken in our hearts. Idolatry can't simply be rejected. It must be replaced by the wonderful truth of the gospel. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. And he delights in me. He delights in me. It may not feel like it's so. It may not seem logical, but Scripture says it's so. It's true. And if we believe it, we will begin to fall in love. It's the key to beginning to really love God with all of our hearts and souls and mind and strength. Now, if any of this has made sense to you, there are some diagnostic questions on the Today's Message panel in the bulletin this morning designed to help you identify the idols in your own life. Go home and really think about those. I've been thinking about those questions. And ask God to show you where you're looking for blessing in all the wrong places. And he will, because he longs to give you genuine blessing. And I would recommend to you get a copy of his book, and read it, counterfeit gods. It has been a great help to me, and it will be a blessing for you as well. So let's stand as we sing our closing hymn this morning. It's one you all know, but in case you don't, it's on the screen or number 190 in your book.